Welcome back to Concordia Journal Currents. I'm Dale Meyer, president of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. Today we are continuing our roundtable discussions on ecclesiology and the doctrine of the church. And joining us today is Dr. William Diekelman, first vice president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, Dr. Eric Herman, assistant professor of historical theology here at Concordia Seminary, and Dr. Paul Robbie, professor and chairman of exegetical theology at Concordia Seminary. We all recently attended the Synod's nationwide theological convocation on church structure. And so we want to talk about that right now. Uh, first of all, Dr. Herman, and let's just go by first names if that's okay. Uh, ecclesiology, we may not have studied that old word. What does it mean simply? Um, well, just the, the theology and doctrine of the church. Um, what we believe the church to be as Christ created it and uh, who we are in Christ and its, and its mission. Okay. Uh, it's not IBM and it's not structured like IBM. It's, it's a unique thing informed by the Bible we'll called this ecclesiology. Okay, thank you for that clarification. Now, Dr. Diekelman, I have several hard-hitting questions for you. Uh, first of all, honest disclosure, we are classmates. We graduated together a couple years ago. Okay, and you know, right from this, right from this institution, from this, from, from this Concordia Seminary, 35, 30, 35 years ago. Thirty-five okay. years ago. The second uh, real question that I want to ask is: I assume that you probably got that suntan by working in the yard pulling weeds. It's true. Okay, very good. <laughs> Honest labor. That's not the way I remember but <laughs> from our student days, but that's okay. Okay, now get, getting right to it. Um, for those of us who might be joining us in mid-conversation, this restructuring thing, what are we talking about? Bring us all up to speed on the restructuring of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And when you do that, you might want to explain what in the world is a synod. Mm -hmm. Good. Thanks. Uh, synod is a, a word that we... Uh, used to call ourselves as people that walk together. Uh, I think uh, the uh, ancient language means literally being on the road together. Uh, a volunteer organization where people say, I want to be part of this. I believe what you believe, you believe what I believe. We share the same confession of faith, the same understanding of scripture, and we have bound ourselves then to one another and to be church together in this way. So like ecclesiology, synod is an old word, but it has a lot of meaning for right here and now. It does. Okay, so now bring us up to speed on the restructuring proposals. The uh, president of the synod several years ago uh, established a task force. It has been uh, pretty clear for some time that as a church body, we are in decline. And we have uh, every year for maybe the last 20 or 30 years lost more members every year than we gained. And we are in the business of being church. We are in the business of gospel proclamation. We are in the business of making disciples of all nations. And so the question uh, from the president of the synod you know, came are we structured in a way that is going to best accomplish the mission? to which we have bound ourselves. Uh, in convention, we have said the mission of our synod is vigorously to make known the love of Christ by word and deed in our churches and our communities and the world. 
So is the structure that we have right now the most efficient and effective for accomplishing that purpose? You know, we began 161 years ago as a synod, 14 congregations together, and the rules that uh, we have bound ourselves to, you know, began back then. Now we're a synod of more than 6,000 congregations, two and a half million people, and does the same structure work for us today in this new century with uh, a changing landscape in our nation and the world? Uh, so that's, uh, that's the question that, uh, that is before our church today. And in our convention uh, in 2007 down in Houston, Texas, you know, dealt with this and said, you know, we need to know more about this. Well, thank you, and that's bringing us up to speed. I have to smile because the first congregation I served when we got out of here, where'd you go first? I was at St. Mark Lutheran Church, Elko, Nevada. Okay, I went to St. Salvatore Lutheran Church in Benedict, Illinois. And that was uh, a congregation that was older than the synod. They went to that first synod meeting, and they weren't sure. They said, well, let's, let's go back home and think about it. In the second year then, or the second convention, they, they did join the synod. Now, today, do we have a specific list of hard proposals that the task force has uh, decided to present to the convention? This is uh, what the task force has, has been doing and is doing right now. Uh, at its initial meetings, the task force kind of went through the president's charge to them. Uh, and basically, the president said, just uh, imagine now that we can start from zero and that you were designing a church body to accomplish the mission that God had, God's mission for our church today. What would that church body look like? which was at first seemed, well, this would be a very simple thing. And then uh, as we uh, began to, uh, uh, you know, kind of sort through that and ask one another the questions, well, what really is necessary for a church body? So the task force went to each of the 35 district board of directors, went to the council of presidents, to the synod board of directors, to uh, other people that were just uh, selected clergy and lay people, you know, to ask them questions about, uh, you know, what, what are we doing? What are you doing as church? And how does the uh, structure, current structure of the Synod, impact your work? And so those basic learnings uh, began. So what, uh, what the task force did now was to uh, collect what, uh, what it had learned and said, you know, we think this is what we heard the church saying. And here are... Uh, some proposals is a word that was used at the convocation the other day. Basically, it's, uh, we see these as options for Kind of like church. observations? Uh, correct. Discussion starters, maybe something like that. that that's exactly it. And, and it was clear, you know, this is a work in progress. These are not the proposals that we are going to bring to the convention in 2010. But this is what we would like the church to talk about. This is what we think we heard the church saying, but we may not be right. If, well, if we're not right, let us know. Yeah, and if I may editorialize, I think that's very wise. Uh, rather than come in with X number of hardcore proposals, take them or leave them, a consensus is being built up through this process. So my editorial is that this is a very wise, wise thing. Uh, before we move on to talk about 
what has been presented as options or discussion starters, um, let, me, let me say two things. First of all, we are going to be continuing our discussions here from Concordia Seminary about this, and we want to participate from our theological perspective in the discussions that Dr. Diekelman laid out. Secondly, uh, is there anything that you, Eric, Dr. Herman, and Paul, Dr. Robbie, would like to chime in on, on what Dr. Diekelman has just said? Well, uh, thank you very much, and uh, I think this is a great opportunity for uh, all the people of the Missouri Senate to wrestle with this larger question, what is the church, who are we? I think it's a great opportunity kind of for self-discovery, and that's a, uh, and, and so this is a, a great, uh, I think this is, could be a very beneficial conversation. Um, now, it, it strikes me that we use the word synod in a lot of different ways. And uh, <clears throat> uh, I was trying to linguistically track the different ways we use this word S-Y-N-O-D. And I'm beginning to wonder if the word is maybe not that helpful anymore. <laughs> in other words, you say it to uh, outsiders and they say synod and they're thinking a certain kind of poison, you know. But uh, uh, we use it, first of all, as a... Uh, in terms of a, uh, you know, we qualify, we say, well, we're not referring, we're, we don't mean a corporation, but we do have a synod inc. And we, we don't mean um, a bureaucracy, but we do have a national office and local district offices. Uh, this one document emphasizes we are an association of congregations. But then, see, this is interesting, just to see how we use it. We are congregations with whom the synod is advisory. Now, somehow the, the definition of synod changed in that sentence. It's not we are congregations who advise ourselves. <laughs> is, this something, is this something then we'll be taking a look at, uh, the, uh, clarifying or the various meanings of synod? Yeah, just the... Of the word. Of how, the word. We, how we use the word. And, and I think if we could clarify that and, and, uh, and also for uh, when we talk with outsiders, uh, how the different ways we use it. The, uh, the task force, uh, at least in my uh, recollection of our conversations, has not spent a whole lot of time you know, with that specific word and, and how we use it linguistically and, and the various meanings of it. And I think that uh, there's just an assumption around the table that we all know and understand what, what the word means in its historical context for for our conversation. Okay. Well, we, we, I mean, we'll, we'll raise questions like this, and, and what comes, comes. Dr. Herman, do you have any uh, initial uh, comments or questions about what Bill laid out? Um, not really a question at this point, maybe an observation that, uh, in, in agreement, that this is really uh, a great opportunity for our church. I mean, I think um, the documents that were prepared already stirred the faculty to start considering these things and put a whole thematic issue on. The convocation uh, was um, a pretty extensive start to that conversation. Uh, certainly nothing definitive going on there, but uh, really getting us to start thinking and our wheels turning. Um, I think uh, Paul is, is highlighting some of those places where we equivocate on terms and use them that we're not sure exactly what we mean by them, or maybe we think we do, but we're not using them consistently. Um, they do have implications uh, beyond just labels and names, and I think we're going to be sorting through some of those things. Some of it will seem pedantic, but I think in the long run, if we, if we are 
looking to see theology as, uh, as uh, forming and fashioning our polity rather than just kind of the hedge or boundary, um, that's, that's going to be a real benefit for our church. Pedantic from seminary professors? <laughs> Can you imagine that? I, I bet you you would like to get, get your eyes on these uh, proposals, observations, the result of the theological convocation that was held in St. Louis in, uh, just recently in August. And we're going to give you, in due time, the website where you can connect and see exactly what it is we're talking about. So stay tuned for that uh, website information. Let's, let's just overview the general headings uh, that were presented to us uh, for consideration and discussion. And I'd invite any of you just to, to make some exam, uh, uh, comments about this without getting too deep into the details. And our, our purpose here is, is to give you a flavor of what was talked about at the Theological Convocation in St. Louis. And then, as I said, uh, you can get the exact document uh, via the website. Uh, first of all, the foundations of the Synod. Uh, Bill, are we changing the doctrine that we were raised in and you and I learned at seminary? You know, none of that is, is changing. The uh, Constitution is the same. The uh, theological underpinnings of our synod have not changed, haven't moved. In fact, the task force reaffirmed all of that. That was the focus, really, of the convocation. And the result, then, is the options, the proposals that the task force set before the synod, assuring everybody that this is still the same base on which our, our forefathers uh, established our synod, which we've agreed upon over the years, and we're, and we're not moving that. What we are talking about, though, is the way that we govern ourselves uh, administratively. Is, is this the best way for us to use the resources that God has given us? And I honestly think on that point that there's a, a pretty good consensus that we do need to make some kind of structural changes, whatever they are. But on, on the foundational uh, doctrine of the church, I think we're, we're agreed that there was nobody saying, let's change what this church stands for theologically. Yeah, no, that never came up. In fact, if there, if there was discussion or disagreement, it's let's, let's really make sure that we continue to be exactly on the scriptures and confessions as we have in the past. This was the, this was the meat of what the task force has been working on these past three years. And, and keeping that in front of us all the time and bringing that to the people that, uh, that were being interviewed about, uh, about the structure, reassuring them and uh, seeking input then still that this is still our context of who we are as a church and now how do we go f best go forward from here. Okay, this, so uh, that's one important thing that needs to be said. The first major heading in the document that was released and is available to you is Congregations and Districts. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is a national body, uh, international context. In fact, we have congregations still in Canada. Uh, but we're divided into districts, 35 districts. And would one of you want to tell us what, what, what are some of the things that you heard discussed about how congregations and districts relate to one another? This is just off the, off the top of your head. Well, I think uh, something that's highlighted here is um, 
the reason why we have them divided up into districts is the ability for them to pool resources, encourage one another. Um, and uh, districts do that at, at various levels depending on how large they are, how many congregations are, are in there. They vary from hardly any staff uh, assisting that to a pretty significant staff if it's a, if it's a large district. Um, but I think that the primary thing is, is the, uh, the ability for congregations to work together and encourage one another. And what's driving at least some of this is uh, how we can more effectively do that and not get caught up in um, fiscal irresponsibility or just too much for, for any one or the whole staff to do. If there was talk about the numbers of districts probably, possibly, possibly changing from 35 down or up, as I remember. Well, yeah, the proposal would, would be uh, you could go to, say, 20 districts and have each one with 300 to 350 congregations. Or you could go up to 100 districts and have each one with maybe 60 congregations. So, you know, it seems to me that's an important question. That, um, the, the, and it, it, it's based on the prior question, what do you want a district to do? And once we are clear on that, then you can talk about what's the optimal size of a district. Uh, but the other thing, though, is, you know, I, I would think everyone would want the districts, the people in the districts, to voluntarily want to make a change rather than uh, have a big fight over this. <laughs> the, uh, you know, as I uh, continue to understand the purpose and function of the Synod, is to do things together that none of us can do by ourselves. And the task force saw really uh, as a result of its uh, conversation around the church body that the number one focus is congregation. Ah, good point. Good and, point. And the equipping and empowering of congregations to be about the work of the church. Now, the work of the church doesn't take place uh, necessarily at the seminary or at the International Center or in a district office. The work of the church takes place in the congregation in that community. And I believe that the, the objectives of the Synod, even from its founding, were to help congregations and by providing them with church workers, by uh, providing them with uh, education material to assist them in the work that, uh, that you know, we have set out to do together. And that's one of the places that uh, popped up repeatedly during the convocation where theology and the polity, how we work together and structure ourselves, uh, come together because our understanding of theology is that God gives us his uh, saving grace through the word and the sacraments, the means of grace, and they're applied in the congregational level. I mean, we look at the congregation as a divine institution, so we want to support that. Do I have that correct, professors? No, I think so. Uh, well, think, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Mr. President, you have it absolutely correct. Um, no, what may be a qualification is that, um, that congregations working together isn't a voluntary option. That's, that's actually part of the essence of the church. I mean, mm -hmm. God has called us together. Uh, there is no such thing as an individual congregation Lone Ranger event. And I think when the Constitution cites, for instance, Acts 15, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4 as reasons for joining a synod, those aren't voluntary reasons. Those are reasons why Christians gather together and work together and are accountable to one another because God has thrown us into this, into this mix as a family. Um, now, the, how we do that, how we arrange it so that those things that are essential to church, uh, to synod, 
Uh, that's some of the things that, that we're dealing with here. I'd like to pick up on that one that, you know, it seems to me that one of the benefits of belonging to a larger confessional fellowship, and it seems to me that that's one of the big topics that kind of, this is an opportunity for the Synod to, to uh, reaffirm and rediscover, is the value of belonging to a larger confessional fellowship that's larger than the congregation. And that is, uh, I think it prevents a congregation or an individual pastor from being tossed to, or f to and fro by every wind of doctrine. You know, one of our speakers talked about how there are these storms on the horizon and how we're, we have to steer into these storms. Well, it's, easily, it's easy for an individual congregation or an individual pastor to jump on the latest fad, be tossed to and fro, you know, now, we're, now I'm a feminist theologian, now I'm a gay theologian, all these fads. And the value of this larger confessional fellowship is to keep our moorings. See, I think we have to rediscover that theology is a group process. It, it's not an individual in isolation. Uh, if we want to remain, to remain scriptural, it requires a group to help you remain scriptural. That's a great point, and I thank you for raising it, because if the congregation is a divine institution, that doesn't necessarily then, it doesn't follow then, that each congregation can be a lone ranger and ride off and do whatever it wants. Uh, the Concordia Journal, which you may or may not be aware of, has a special issue that came out in July this summer about just this topic. And one of the articles by Dr. Jeffrey Cloa of the Concordia faculty talks about how in the New Testament already, we can see congregations uh, impelled to get to, to together with one another because of their shared confession and working together, greeting one another, visiting one another, because they're all in this thing together. So uh, that's, that's one of the reasons that impels us to have a synod and uh, to do it in an effective way. Very good. I'm glad I asked you the question here. Yeah. Uh, let, let's, so that, that's under the uh, section called... Uh, congregations and districts. There's a lot more there. You'll see when you look at the document yourself. The next big heading is congregations and the National Synod. National Synod means what, Dr. Diekelman? It is the, uh, the things that uh, uh, the various uh, corporations and departments of the uh, uh, bigger church body that involve the, uh, the mission department, the uh, district and congregational services, the things that are in place to support districts and congregations. Okay, these are the big guys, right? The, the, the heavy responsibilities. And, and for example, the president of the Synod, you the first vice president, and, and so on of the whole thing. Now, there are a number of things here. Uh, perhaps one of, the, one of the professors would like to just pull out something that typifies the questions that we can ask about the relationship of congregations and national synod. Well, the, the first suggestion was, uh, uh, option is determine which boards and commissions should be at the national level, which should be more at the local level. I think that's a great question. That's a great distinction that, uh, 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 so that there's not any unnecessary duplication and kind of uh, determining, you know, what do we want a national level to do, what don't we want a national level to do? That's an important question. Mm -hmm. you know, resources are precious, and 
the uh, you know the the best way we can apportion those resources to accomplish the work is is really what we need to be doing as a church body, as as the national synod. Yeah. Eric, you know though this isn't actually listed in here, but it was part of our conversation at the convocation. Is um, what is what is the best way in which congregations, which are scattered all about, have an have an identity as synod? I mean, I think sometimes uh, congregations feel so disconnected from one another, and even that there is a synod. Um, and the direction was was kind of moving towards that that districts are really sort of synod in in a, a more localized way. Your identity to one another is kind of found there, and that um, the direction might be better to move. Uh, towards finding resources, identity, uh, through that smaller framework of a district. Yeah, one of the things that I noticed uh, in the section on congregations in the National Synod uh, has to do with, with administration. Correct me if I'm wrong, but right now we have a number of program boards. And those program boards are comprised of people who are elected uh, largely by the National Convention. And they have an executive. Each program board has an executive who answers to the program board but does not have a direct relationship to the president of the synod on the flow chart. And I think there are some questions, is that the best way to do it? Or should that executive also have a direct relationship to the president of the synod? Am I stating it correctly? That, that is correct. That is how we are currently structured. Uh, by the way, let me just, let me just say yeah, this please. here. Am I, uh, in my own conversation with people around the church body in relation to questions that I've received about the task force and, and the work, and a lot of people are curious in our church body about this. And I have just uh, uh, asked people if they, what they understand about the current structure of the Senate. Uh, to the point, you know, asking somebody who just sits in a pew in a local church on Sunday morning, uh, do you know how many districts there are in the Synod? Do you know how a program board comes into being? And it's uh, just my observation that there are some in our church body right now who don't know how we are structured. They know about their congregation. They may know about their district, but about the relationship of the National Synod, how it's structured, why you know why it is even the way that it is right now, so I, I agree with you, uh, Eric, that this is a great time in our church to begin these discussions because it is going to be a very self-identifying thing for us, not just about our structure, but who are we as the people of God, and what do we see as our work as the people of God, and I think when we get to that. The, the structural pieces are going to fall into place. And I would say, you know, part of that then is precisely this kind of this question uh, that I think needs to be highlighted is what does it mean to belong to a larger confessional fellowship that's beyond the congregation? See, one of the uh, one of Walther's theses was Walther is whom the founder of the Missouri Senate. One of his uh, fundamental tenets 
was that the synod protects the congregation from an abusive pastor, and the synod protects a pastor from an abusive congregation. So in other words, there's a sense in which that congregation does not just belong to that pastor, it belongs to a larger fellowship. And that pastor doesn't just belong to that congregation, he belongs to a larger fellowship. And so, uh, you know, there's a bigger level here that we all have to take, uh, consider. I venture to say, too, that when, when uh, Mr. and Mrs. Pusitter that you, you described there uh, find out that they are part of a larger body and all the things that this great church body has been doing for so many years, that's going to give them an energy and, and a bit of a pride that I think, and, and the right kind of pride. You know, I'm glad that I belong to... St. Paul's down the road, Lutheran Church, and let me tell you the things that, that we're doing through our church. I, I believe that's right. Uh, you know, when I, when I think about uh, adult baptisms, I thank God for every adult baptism and every adult confirmation. But I'm just, uh, just think about a 55-year-old man or woman who uh, joins a local LCMS congregation and all the angels in heaven rejoice over that. Now this person has uh, a lifetime of experience, none of it in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Uh, when I think about my life, it's always been with the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And I know a lot of things that I've collected along the years about the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, about the traditions, about the history, about the structure of our church body. And now here's a person who is a member of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, no more or less than you and me. And there's an expectation that you have that same amount of knowledge and information that I have. We didn't all grow up at St. Paul's down the road by the quarry, uh, Lutheran Church. Let's, let's hit one more major category here. And then after we do that, here's what I want to do, brothers, is start uh, listing, not too long a list, but a list of the things that, that we think from a, our perspective need to be explored some more, and that we at Concordia Seminary will explore gladly on behalf of the church, okay? We're going to do it this way. Let's not talk about how we're going to, we're going to do it this way. All right? Okay. Okay, that's good. Uh, the last major uh, category is congregations, membership, and conventions. Presently, a mem there are two types of members of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. A congregation as a whole, and then the clergy roster, ordained ministers, commissioned, which are our parochial school teachers, and I believe that includes other categories of workers. Deaconesses, DCEs, all other category of professional church workers. Okay, is that under discussion to be changed? The, uh, uh, the membership qualifications, the conversation is that, uh, you know, people at uh, St. Matthew by the quarry say, I'm a member of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Well, according to our official explanation and definition of membership, they wouldn't be professional church workers and congregations. So uh, under discussion is, uh, yeah, why don't we say that uh, everybody is now a member of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and uh, can do say so in some official 
kind of capacity. That's a discussion starter. And then that, that would have an impact then on who goes to the convention. Are we talking about the uh, configuration of our national conventions? We are. D district and national conventions, uh, you know, right now those operate on a three-year cycle. And one of the things under discussion right now is commission ministers, especially that, uh, that category, who are not allowed to vote at our conventions. And uh, uh, so the proposal is let them vote. Let's uh, include that uh, category of church worker. Okay, comments, brother professors? Well, uh, what, I mean, what's the logic or what was the original logic for limiting membership to only congregations and pastors? I have no idea. Yeah, can we go historical on this, Eric, or? Uh, I, historical speculation, I think, which is again motivated by the idea that the, the, the congregation um, is more of a unit than an individual Christian. Um, and so you wouldn't necessarily identify individuals, but as congregations working together under pastoral care. I think, I think if I may venture, and I'll be corrected by someone if I'm getting this wrong, because it's wonderful to be a convenient target, but uh, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod was born out of a controversy. Uh, the first people of the, of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod uh, came over in the 1830s, and they were led by a man called Martin Stephan. And he assumed the role of a bishop. He dominated uh, the emigrants. Um, and they finally found out that this man was not all that he was professing to be. And he was expelled from the colony. In reaction to that clergy dominance, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, uh, operated under a different name in those days, grew up very sensitive to a balance between clergy and lay people. And so that's where you got the, the, this, this parody, this uh, we make sure that in our conventions there is an exact number of, of clergy votes versus lay votes. And I mean, we're not just talking sort of an exact number. It gets exact. I mean, it's, it might be, what, 400 and 400 or 401 and 400, whatever the numbers are. But it grows out of our, our, our history. And an unfortunate uh, case of clergy dominance. And, yeah, at our conventions, it's equal votes between clergy and lay people. So those elections that take place, both for district conventions, uh, for synod conventions, have the uh, same rules. And one of the things that, that, that is uh, almost taken for granted, I think, by the uh, theological convocation just held is we want to work in harmony clergy and lay people together because we're all in this together for our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so we've given you this overview. You can check it out on the website in, in more details. We're going to start uh, making a list of, of, of things that we think need further exploration. And being the people that we are here at Concordia Seminary, some of these are going to be theological, ecclesiolog ecclesiological issues, church issues, okay? So uh, we already have the definition of the word synod. What exactly does that mean? Let's list some other things that uh, we assure you we are going to pursue. We will have uh, programs about and maybe even some writings about. Well, let, let me just say one uh, proposal that I strongly uh, support and uh, for theological and ecclesial reasons is the proposal that uh, from now on all doctrinal statements or resolutions or positions must uh, must receive a two-thirds vote. I think that's terrific. In other words, uh, 
when a doctrinal position comes before a Senate and it receives a 51% vote, what does that mean? That means the Senate does not have consensus on this issue. That's what it means. It means we have to study this issue more, whereas when a doctrinal position receives a two-thirds vote, that means Senate has pretty good consensus on this issue. Uh, so that, uh, and of course, the Word of God alone establishes doctrine, but uh, I, I just think uh, everything doctrinal that comes before Senate should require a two-thirds vote. I think that's a great proposal okay. for theological reasons. There's, there's a plus there. Would you, Eric, make some suggestions? Um, for pursuit. This is actually a broader suggestion, and maybe there's some right, specific right, right. examples, and this is kind of building off of this. Um, that we're sure, and it's not, these are, this is more of sort of a, like you said, observations, almost a kind of a, a guided brainstorming session here. Um, but that when we evaluate them, that we don't just evaluate whether they're consistent with our theology, to sort of use theology and the scriptures and confessions as a boundary and a hedge that we just don't transgress, but that we actually allow our view of church and one another to, to creatively fashion it and form it. Um, and so, I mean, for an example, uh, your view of what the church is and what it should be for one another would inform things like how, how might you divide circuits, for instance. Um, dividing circuits in which uh, weaker churches are paired with stronger churches um, would probably reinforce a theology of church that we find in the New Testament and the Confessions. One that would sort of isolate small churches in one group and have uh, paired off only with large churches or similar churches would seem to run counter or dangerous of running counter to things like um, honoring the weaker. I mean, we're, we're in a family in which you sort of support one another whether you look exactly alike or agree with one another. Wouldn't that almost uh, lead to a virtual church where we don't meet face-to-face -face, but we, we do our business online? Well, and we, and we have that already. We wouldn't want to institutionalize, uh, you know, the blogosphere or something like that. Um, so th those are ways, that's an example, for instance, where, th where our theology is not just a boundary, but actually informs the decisions that we do. And it's part, of a, it's part of that, in other words, where does your accountability start? And it would seem to me that the accountability starts on the local level. In other words, the pastor in St. Louis is not, first of all, accountable to pastors in California, but first of all, accountable to other pastors in St. Louis. <laughs> and that's, that's one of the things that uh, I don't know how explicitly it's mentioned in here, but it certainly is part of life in churches that we're accountable to one another. If I go off and do something stupid, you know, a, a person, brother pastor, is going to come and say, oh, wait a minute, Dale, think that through again. Was that the right way to do? And we don't want to lose that accountability because that's, that's one of the things that has made us a strong church for all these years. Right. Well, I, th I think, too, if you, if you don't allow our doctrine to be more of a creative force in our polity, then the danger is we will probably make decisions primarily for, for fiscal reasons, um, which is one of the things we need to be good stewards. As you, but it, sometimes doing the theologically uh, and right thing might be a little bit more expensive uh, and not the cheapest route. And so as we evaluate them, it can't be just stewardship. It's got to also be how we relate to one another as God's people you and know, His mission. There can be a combination, though. You know, in other words, it can be that... Uh, 
uh, in terms of accountability, the congregations and, and pastors in town are accountable to each other, but also the synod can find other congregations, other pastors that are wrestling with similar challenges and so and link them up you know in other words that's a value of senate right. there's pastor over here in this state who has the same kind of challenges let me affirm that because i'm sure you had the same experience that i did in in serving congregations that uh, that one of the ways maybe the predominant way by which the senate helped us is it gave us this excellent training to formation to become pastors but then we got together in our conferences and i would say hey bill i've got a I've got a situation congregation I'm not sure what to do with. And then maybe you might say, well, you know, I had something like that, but let's get old Arno or Pete in, in this discussion. And, and we share together face-to-face, -face, not on email, you might on email too. But that was one of the things that, that occurred to me through these discussions is what help, what real hands-on help do pastors get from the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod? And just thinking through my own experience, and I'd invite your comment, it was this uh, the, the fellowship where we could get together behind closed doors and say, listen, I need some help on this thing. I'm not sure how to handle this as a, as a gospel-centered pastor. It's true. We get one another. And it doesn't even have to be behind closed doors. I'm thinking of uh, many instances at pastors' conferences when, uh, you know, there's been a, a presenter, seminary faculty pro or a seminary professor, and uh, raises an issue. And, you know, someone raises his hand and says, you know, we're dealing with that in our church right now. I don't know how to handle it. And, the, and an open conversation, discussion begins about it. It's a blessing when, when those kinds of things happen. They're, they're uh, called case studies today. I think when we enter the ministry, it's called casuistry. Right. Are there some things that you, from your position, would like the seminary faculty to uh, explore and contribute to the ongoing discussion? This is, uh, yes, there is. This is what I, what I think, that, that as the people, the congregations, district staff, seminary faculties, university faculties begin discussing this, a whole lot more questions are going to be raised than are on the paper right now. And I think great discussion is going to take place. And it's going to take some wise leadership. It's going to take some level heads. It's going to have to have somebody to uh, keep us grounded theologically as the church goes around these discussions so that it doesn't become a fiscal conversation. So, because I think it could easily end up in that. So that, we, uh, so that we maintain our eye on the Word of God and say, how are we going to let the Word of God lead our church body now and put in place those things that need to be here. So I, I think the seminary faculties probably are going to be uh, very necessary in the next couple of years, even more than that, because I'm not imagining if, for instance, uh, the next convention of the Synod does uh, adopt some changes, that uh, we're all going to go home after that convention and then September 1st, everything is going to change and we're going to stop doing what we've been doing. You know, whatever changes, if any, are adopted are going to take a while to be put in place. But I think when they do begin to be put in place, we're going to see, oh, you know, the Lord is leading us down this path, and it is a good way for us to go. Now I think we need to be doing this and this. So I think the conversation that we've begun is going to be going on for a long time. And I think that uh, the Concordia Journal is probably going to be uh, filled with articles 
uh, in the years ahead, guiding our church body as as we go forward. And we're glad to do that. And and we uh, sincerely, uh, the entire faculty here, faculty here at Concordia, uh, wants to be a, a servant, a theological servant, to provide the kind of things you're talking about. Are there some other specifics we want to jot down before one, we wrap one, this program up? One thing I wanted to. Uh, mention it's on the last page of the uh, proposals and that is this uh, reference at the top to bylaws and uh, not to create more work for the uh, task force but Senate's been in existence for 160 years and over those years we probably have thousands of bylaws it's and, a book full of them. <laughs> and thousands of doctrinal resolutions that we have passed over the years and it seems to me that somebody somebody's going to have to actually work through all those <laughs> uh, delete all of the irrelevant ones find all the ones that contradict each other uh, and and whittle the list down you know that uh, uh, I'm worried that we're good at addition but we need to learn the fine art of subtraction. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you're dealing when you're dealing with resolutions and uh, bylaws, you're in the area of the law, and that always multiplies. It always multiplies because you find something. Well, this isn't quite right, so we got to pass some rule to fix it. And one of the things that ought to issue out of this whole process is uh, not getting rid of bylaws. You have to have them so things are done decently in order but more trust, more trust, because we're proving up to our, one another through this process that we have the best interests of our church and of our Lord at but, work. But, but I don't think they can be overly complicated, and I don't think you can have thousands of That's them. That's right, you're absolutely right. You end up, you need a Ph.D. in canon law to figure that all out. I mean, pretty soon it would be like Hebrew, right? <laughs> I, I don't know what the first handbook of the Synod looked like, Paul, but it probably didn't look anything like what we have here. And I think over the years, you know, just as... As the church changed, as society changed, as our country changed, and as we grew uh, and needed to, uh, you know, fix things, uh, so added, added, and changed it went this way. All which recalls, which uh, requires some kind of uh, guidance from the bylaws. You know, the Concordia Historical Institute put out a CD of over 2,000 doctrinal resolutions passed by Senate because one of the commission ministers upon uh, being, uh, 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 being brought in at, to one of the Concordia universities, they asked this person, do you agree with our doctrinal resolutions? And this person asked, Where are, what are they? Yeah. <laughs> and it turns out <laughs> that uh, there are over 2,000 of them. Okay, one, one last uh, opportunity for you, Eric, uh, something that you'd like to add to the list for us to work on in the future. Um, again, sort of nothing really specific. I think, it's, I think one of the things that needs to be done here is connecting the dots. Um, maybe be very transparent about which things are just a matter of stewardship, with things, which things are a matter of our mission, our doctrinal fellowship or accountability to one another, so we can see what we're trying to accomplish by these. It's hard for people to have a discussion with the options. You know, for example, with the, whether we're going to increase districts or decrease districts, the reasons for them are actually quite different. Uh, to, to decrease them deals more with accountability and districts to know their congregations. To increase them is to pool resources. Um, and so those kind of things, those dots need to be connected in our conversation. It's going to help us, I think, evaluate it better. It's going to be very interesting, very beneficial. And if I might uh, say something here, which probably isn't 
the, the, the work of the Blue Ribbon Task Force, um, but it certainly is the work of Concordia Seminary. As we said at the beginning, uh, the, the doctrinal position of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is unchanged. We at the seminaries need to make sure that uh, the, the pastors and deaconesses that we form to go out into this wonderful church know how to take that doctrinal basis and present it in a way that is relevant to people, not dry, dusty dogmatics, but true teachings from God's Word and from the confessions that uh, the people sitting in the, in the pew at St. Paul down by the quarry um, will say, wow, you know, that's what I needed to hear for this week, that teaching from God's Word and the confessions that is going to make a difference. Do we have consensus on that? And all God's people said, yes, sir, Mr. President, we do. <laughs> so I want to thank, I want to thank uh, Dr. Bill Diekelman, my classmate, for being here t- today, Dr. Eric Herman, and Dr. Paul Robbie, uh, fellow professors with me here at Concordia Seminary. Our uh, discussion has been excellent. I've really enjoyed it. And the discussion is not going to stop here and now, and it won't be stopping anytime soon. The discussion will continue at Concordia Seminary's own Theological Symposium, September 22 through 24. September 22 through 24. For additional information on that, and if you'd like to order other resources like the Concordia Journal and the Concordia Journal Comments CD-ROM, let me stop and point out that we have uh, CD-ROM materials available on this topic in addition to our great special issue of the journal and upcoming issues. If you like that, further information uh, is listed below. Once again, thanks to our, our guests and thanks to you for joining us at Concordia Journal Currents. And we look forward to seeing you next time.